So a couple of weeks ago, I was out in L.A. to do a site visit of a top-secret urban UAV base. You mean drones? Yeah, drones. I'm, I'm still doing the drone thing. So they have this security protocol where I'm at the hotel. I have to call a number. I'm waiting. At some point, the van comes to pick me up. It's one of those kind of government-looking issue vans. All the windows are blacked out. And it takes us to the UAV base. And that's, that's, how, that's how it works. Now, I've been doing this for a while, and usually there's, you know, it's a pretty full van. There's a team of engineers, scientists, uh, you know, intel people, consultants like me. And, you know, so it's usually there's a crowd. Uh, this time was different. What do you mean? I get in the van and close the door, and there's just, just this one other guy. So, you know, I didn't want to be rude, so I sat down right, right across from him. And, you know, we start rolling to the base. But we don't get very far. We're, we're, just, we're just crawling, you know. We can't see out the windows, but you can just feel that we're not moving very fast. And after 20 minutes, I don't think we're moving at all. Right, we're just sitting still. I can hear horns honking, you know, everyday LA traffic stuff. So after a while, this the guy across from me pulls out his iPhone, you know, hits hits Google Maps, and looks at me and says, "We're just sitting still on the 101." But, wait a minute, when when they block this, I mean, you're you're on a van with blacked out windows, and you're telling me you can just like fire up Google Maps and follow along. Look, the thing you have to realize is all these, all this security measure stuff, it's really all for show. So the guy puts his phone away, and we sit there for another 10 minutes, not moving. And this guy starts looking around real quick, and he leans over to me and says, Hey, man, you want to do some whippets? I don't even know what a whippet is. Well, it's just when you inhale the the nitrogen gas off the top of a can of whipped cream, and you get high. And, and what did you say to this guy? I couldn't. I couldn't think of anything else to say. But yeah, sure. So this guy is like like loaded up with cans of whipped creams in his pocket. Yeah, he had them like in a gym bag. Who, who the hell is this guy? He's just a guy named Fred. He works for the FBI. He told me his his buddies call him Crazy Freddy. And Crazy Freddy, it turns out, was one of the special agents in charge of the FBI sting operation that penetrated Lulsec and nabbed Sabu. Hold on a minute. So you're telling me that the special agent in charge of the FBI operation that supposedly infiltrated Anonymous and got this hacker Sabu to inform on his fellow Anons is a guy named Crazy Freddy, who you met in a secret government van en route to visit a secret drone base in L.A. And you did whippets with him while you were stuck on the highway. Yeah. So did he by any chance tell you how they got this guy Sabu to flip? Because it doesn't really make any sense why he would turn on his fellow Anons and set them up like that. 
Oh, well, the FBI just threatened his family. Ah, makes perfect sense. But what possibly could they have gotten from Sabu? I mean, it's not like he's the leader of Anonymous. He's just another hacker. I mean, if they really want to stop credit card fraud, why don't they go after the Russians or the Chinese? I don't understand why this guy was even a target. According to Crazy Freddy, the FBI was really happy with all the work that Sahu did for them. Basically, they they busted on 12 other hackers that worked for Anonymous. And most of that came from just the Strat4 hack. Yeah, but again, this is why this story doesn't make any sense to me. Because when Sabu and a bunch of his minions hacked into the Strat4 Corporation last December, Sabu was already working for the FBI. And since Sabu trained these other Anons how to hack into Strat4, the whole thing turns into one giant entrapment case. Well, dude, this is how the FBI fights crime now. Huh? Well, after 9-11, there was a realignment within the FBI, and the focus shifted from catching criminals and building criminal cases to interdicting terrorists before they could act. It's a completely different ballgame. So, what, uh, but I don't understand then. What was the point of their operation? Making it look like they, they can catch cyber criminals? I don't get it. Like, what was the point? Stratfor. Here's what you need to understand about Stratfor. Okay, this is a private intelligence company, Strategic Forecasting, which is Stratfor for short. It's founded by this guy, George Friedman. So this guy, George Friedman, he grew up watching James Bond movies. And he was determined to be a spy when he grew up. But he never grew up. He got together some money, and he founded this intelligence company where you know it's basically a bunch of dudes they've got a few contacts but most of all they're just looking stuff up on the internet packaging it up into documents and selling it to people that are too lazy to even do that and they end up getting in the way of actual intelligence and law enforcement officials trying to do their job from my work experience everyone in the agencies everyone that's a intel law enforcement, everybody hates these guys. So a couple of days before Christmas, Crazy Freddy's running this whole operation with Sabu, and he comes up with this amazing idea. He has Sabu and his followers hack into Stratfor, steal all their data and all their files, and dump it all on the internet. But I don't understand, why would he do this? I asked him that. And he took a big whippet hit. He looked at me with a big smile and said, for the lulls. We were doing it for the lulls.
According to internet legend, the word lulls made its first appearance in an IRC channel back in the live journal era. I'd say probably 2003, 2004. That's Weave. He was there on that IRC. That's W-E-E-V. And uh, I'm an internationally notorious internet troll. On this occasion, Weave and his fellow trolls were discussing LJ Drama, a web community that regularly mocked and humiliated LiveJournal users who caught their attention. Show-offs, complainers, noobs, people who talk too much about their bodies or their friends or their relationships. According to Weave, everyone on LiveJournal was fair game. LiveJournal really facilitated a form of narcissism, which, which sort of doesn't transmit to the, some of these newer services, which is part of why the, these newer services are more commercially viable because, you know, they're not... They're not necessarily user-centric. People are more the product than, you know, they're, they're passive consumers versus active participants in the medium. I, I really think that, that, you know, with like Twitter and Facebook and all these short posts, like you don't really get to see people's like true, like just absolute batshit insanity. LJ Drama's admins didn't just highlight live journal drama. They trolled their targets as well. Perhaps the most famous example is Mediacrat a gay university student named Joshua Williams who liked to post pictures of himself online. But these pictures and a tiff he got into with another LJ user put him in the LJ drama crosshairs. Joshua was epically trolled by Jameth, one of LJ drama's admins, to the point where he was regularly threatening Jameth with internet lawsuits and restraining orders. In fact, this story is why the website Encyclopedia Dramatica exists. Like, you know, that, that, that sort of stuff is just automatically funny all the time. It just brought laughter to, you know, tens of thousands of people. So, back to that IRC. Somebody, you know, pastes, you know, some link to some live journal post. And uh, this dude, Jameth, says, LULZ in all capital letters. Just like... And, like, instantly it clicks, and, like, everybody else, like, scrolls. You see, like, five people say lulls afterwards. You know, there's something magical about the term. <laughs> it ca captured this form of, like, schadenfreude, where you're, like, looking at somebody, and they're making a complete fucking idiot of themselves. There's something, something very visceral about it. That's why it caught on so big. It's definitely some, some form of new form of schadenfreude that I think that the internet has sort of enabled it. It sounds so funny to say you, you've come up with a set of theories for the lulls. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. When it comes to internet culture, Gabriella Coleman, or Biella, is simply one of the best thinkers out there. She just started a new job as the Wolf Chair in Scientific and Technological Literacy at McGill University. But just before she left New York City this winter, we sat down for a long talk about the lulls. Part of its definition is taking pleasure in other people's pain. But it also can mean, you know, loving, playful cats with insensible captions. It falls on that spectrum mm -hmm. from the very playful to the extremely sinister. I mean, that's the thing about the lulls. It's a little bit hard to define in a short sentence because it connotes a kind of shorthand for a deep, coy, cultural world of humor that comes out of the Internet. 
Now, while the word lulls was forged by trolls in an IRC channel, it's an idea that goes way back. But according to Biella, there was a very particular reason why internet enthusiasts embraced the lulls in the early aughts. While the term the lulls was new, uh, in the sense it hadn't been around for too long among kind of internet en enthusiasts, that spirit of pranksterism uh, among kind of transgressive technologists went back. You know, I really saw something similar among transgressive hackers in the 80s or 90s or phone freaks who had a similarly kind of boastful, prankerish, audacious style to them. But something seemed to happen whereby that kind of audacious style used to run in the background and the hacking was foreground. And then it seemed like at a certain point that flipped where the hacking became a little bit more at the background and the lulls became the foreground. And I think a couple of things happened to help cement that change or have that flip happen. One of which was, you know, hacking uh, in the kind of quote-unquote criminal sense became heavily criminalized. So the, there was laws that were passed in the 80s and 90s um, that really gave stiff penalties for forms of hacking. And so the risks became quite high. And there's a way in which folks like Kevin Mitnick, who had kind of flourished in the 1990s, became a little bit of an endangered species. And the lulls or trolling kind of filled the spot of transgressive hacking in the face of stiff laws. Gabriella Coleman comes to the lulls by way of Anonymous. She's devoted years of study to the Anonymous movement. But curiously, she came upon Anonymous, almost, by accident. When I was doing my work on free software in San Francisco, a lot of people had mentioned the Church of Scientology. Uh, that they didn't like them, that they protested them, that they had critiqued them. And to me, this was interesting but irrelevant to my work on free software, so I filed it away in the kind of deep recesses of my brain. And then I ended up in 2006 at the University of Alberta for a postdoc. And they happened to have the largest Scientology archives in the world in this old IKEA. And I felt like, you know, Xenu was sending me a message that clearly I needed to go look at geek and hacker protests against the Church of Scientology that had blossomed in the 1990s. And when I kind of threw myself into Scientology, or the archives, not into Scientology, the archives, I was like, oh, now I see why geeks and hackers like to protest the Church of Scientology. It's their evil doppelganger. It's their perfect nemesis. It's like their bizarro world. It's like everything that geeks and hackers love and cherish, Scientology embraces, but in kind of distorted fashion. So it's a religion of science and technology, but of science and technology that doesn't work. It's very proprietary. Um, they're into science fiction. They have all this jargon. So I kind of understood why, you know, once Scientology entered the realm of like things like censorship and being very proprietary, why some geeks and hackers would be attracted to, to protest them. So I had this little side project, and I was very secretive about it because the Church of Scientology went after its critics or even people who researched them. So I was very mum. So I had this secret project, and I gave a couple presentations, um, but I didn't do too much with it until Anonymous 
appeared in 2008. And they went on this like tornado-like trolling rampage against the Church of Scientology. And I was like, huh, look at this. Another horde of geeks going after the church. But a lot was different in the second set of protests against, against the church, in part because they were trolling the church for the lulls. And so I got really interested in thinking about why the lulls and trolling was exploding now in this kind of contemporary moment. I think it's a privilege to call yourself a Scientologist, and it's something that you have to earn. And because a Scientologist does, he or she has the ability to create new and better realities and improve conditions. For me, the most amazing detail about the whole war between Anonymous and the Church of Scientology is that it all starts with a viral video. A Tom Cruise talking about his love for the Church of Scientology, of which he is a member, viral video. <laughs> There's nothing part of the way for me. And the video is so great because it's Tom Cruise and it's a kind of... Um, video internal to the church used for recruitment purposes. And when you watch it, you're like, wow, this is so ridiculous. And it's also, it strikes you as very lulzy, although certainly the church didn't make it for the lulz, right? Um, but that's probably why it was so kind of beloved among internet geeks and enthusiasts, because they're like, wow, that is so lulzy, but they're not trying to be lulzy, because to be lulzy, you have to be kind of also ironic and have sort of distance, reflexive distance, none of that going on with this video. And then the video um, circulated like wildfire and the Church of Scientology threatened web publishers such as Gawker with lawsuits if they didn't take it down. And that's when um, Anonymous geared into what they called ultra-coordinated motherfuckery. Uh, an Anon who came to my class used that term to describe what he, he did, which was, you know, send uh, naked pictures of himself via fax to the church, and they pranked the Dianetics hotline, sent unpaid pizzas, these sorts of things. It was all over the news. Fox News was covering them. They were having a great time. It was just what, what they would call a kind of epic win, an epic troll. But for some Anons, this epic internet win just wasn't enough. Gabriella Coleman says she started seeing calls for IRL trolling. Anons on internet relay chat started to debate as to whether they should maybe hit the streets and like protest. And they went ahead and organized a day of protests. And what was interesting about those that first day of protests in February of 2008 was on the one hand, it, it, was, it, it straddled the line between frivolous and serious that very first day. Because a lot of people who came out we're just excited to meet other people from 4chan, basically. They're like, oh, you know, other people like me who spend hours a day watching, you know, porn on 4chan or posting 4chan, I could finally meet them, you know? And that was certainly part of the excitement. Of course, Biella was there. I did go out here in New York and I wore a wolf hat and sunglasses because you're not allowed to wear uh, masks. And it was kind of incredible because there was like 400 internet geeks and nerds and they brought a lot of internet artifacts like long cats and mud kips so a lot of these esoteric memes they made posters uh with them and and people were joking in internet jargon 
to me, what was so amazing about it was it just felt very accidental. You know, they were just doing it to see if they could do it. Sure, some people by this time already had been shocked by the abuses of the church and were doing it in earnest, but it was still extremely carnivalesque and playful. And its future was quite uncertain. They were just kind of experimenting. But what was really clear or dramatic was by the end of the day, what had happened was all these people had created videos and images and it kind of gave substance to what people were doing in, in a way that, you know, if there hadn't been videos or, or images, it probably would have felt uh, more carnivalesque, but it just seemed to perform its importance in some sort of weird way. And everyone was wearing these Guy Fox masks. My personal favorite image from this day is a picture of a bunch of Anons wearing their now classic Guy Fox mask. Most are brandishing signs protesting the Church of Scientology, but there's also this long taped together sign that says, Long Cat is Long. And the caption done in classic meme style says, Oh fuck, the internet is here. And that's, you know, and that, and, and that captures the spirit of how people were feeling. Like, wow, we're, we're here because of the internet. We are internet people, you know? And I think the important thing, too, is that the lulls also captures kind of in-group belonging, where you're conjoined in part because of the esoteric knowledge and humor that you all share together. According to Gabriella Coleman, the lulls didn't just bring these people together. It gave birth to a movement. What happened was that some people, I guess, caught the political bug or something. They wanted to continue and, and stay to protest the Church of Scientology, and, and they did. And there was something by the name of Project Chinology that was born, which was a protest movement to emphasize the kind of human rights abuses of the church, and that, that's the thing that's really amazing about it, is that even though they themselves say we're doing this for our own enjoyment, a.k.a. the lulls, um, it still struck like a, a chord, you know, and got people excited about protesting and in earnest. Chinology um, is a phenomenon, really. Mm. I mean, it's kind of, I, I think in 20 years we'll look back at this series of events and how it changed how people act, are act, active online and, and the way it kind of called people into the streets all over the world. That's Brian Knappenberger. He's just released a film in which the lulls plays a prominent role. The movie's called We Are Legion, The Rise of the Hacktivists. I got to see it at South by Southwest last month. Let's listen to a clip. What you're about to hear are a bunch of Anons who are featured in the film talking about what happened right after Project Chinology kicked off. This actually caused a decent rift in Anonymous. There was one big group, significant group of people who would say, this Chinology stuff, it's, it's cancer, it's awful, it's bad. It's, it's just bringing attention to us that we don't want. The trolling isn't happening. We're not getting our jollies. Like, now this is all really serious and moral and somber. And like, well... You know, that's not what I signed up for, that kind of thing. And then there are the people who were on the other side who are going, 
Well, I only signed up for the serious and somber. You guys, go away. This is, this is, you know, and, you know, there became this very fierce clash of ideologies, and it was alien to us. They decided, uh, in their own words, which I, I, I was privy to because it was told to me, stop ruining our bad name. So to make Anonymous look bad, they go off and they post uh, animated GIFs, uh, animated images to epilepsy forums that are black and white just strobing really quickly. So any of the epilepsy people on these support forums see it and they fall off their chairs, you know, in seizure. This struggle over the ideology and identity of Anonymous is the major turning point in Brian Knappenberger's film. With a different group, you might call it almost like a soul-searching moment, but it's, it seems a little ridiculous to call it like that with Anonymous. But um, there's a very serious group, a very significant group, that says, um, you guys are just way too serious. You guys are being way too... This is getting ridiculous. Like, you, all this moralizing and stuff. So, you know, what we want is the lulls. In the movie, the trolls refuse to let the hacktivists take over without a fight. Not only do they launch Project Epilepsy, but they also come out swinging with some good old-fashioned name-calling. Around that time, you start hearing, um, for the first time, you start hearing the word moral fag. And moral, uh, of course, with Anonymous, um, the word fag is pretty much tacked onto everything. In fact, there are gay fags. Um, but the word moral fag is a kind of a key to understanding um, the split. And it's a very significant split. And from where certain people said, um, look, we're, we're in this for activist reasons. We're in this to try to change the world. We're in this to try to do good. And moral fags have, uh, I don't know how you, how you measure these things, but they seem to be in charge. Now, I understand that Brian Knappenberger can't call his film We Are Legion, The Rise of the Moral Fags, but I kind of wish he did because I think hacktivist just isn't the right word for some of the individuals featured in the movie. People like Barrett Brown. He even admits he likes the term moral fag. Which is what I am, a moral fag. Those who want to use anonymous as, you know, as a tool for, for good in some sense. Uh rather than just doing what we used to do, which is to screw with video games. Barrett Brown got 15 minutes of internet fame a few months ago when he became the spokesperson for what has to be the most bizarre anonymous operation yet, Operation Cartel. I'm going to play you a clip from a YouTube video that Barrett Brown put out for the world. It's about a minute long, but listen closely. Is this hacktivism? Hello, I'm Barrett Brown. I'm making this video in order to uh, better address a number of questions that have come up regarding Operation Cartel. Uh, very briefly, Operation Cartel was started by a small party of Anons uh, a number of days back uh, with the uh, original intent of releasing the names and other identifying information of individuals uh, in Veracruz and elsewhere who are known to be uh, involved with the Zeta Cartel. Obviously, there are lives hanging in the balance and uh, fundamentally, uh, the fact that there are lives in the balance here does not differentiate this operation from previous anonymous operations, particularly those in North Africa, in which you know, the decision to, to help rev things up in Tunisia, and particularly in Egypt and elsewhere, uh, obviously had implications for the lives of thousands, you know, not just those who were killed or injured, but the 
the many more who afterwards were freed. So uh, I decided to support the uh, operation. Speaking to other reporters, uh, continue to approach me about it, uh, and otherwise providing my support. Uh, thanks again, and any email questions can be sent to me at veridicus at gmail.com. That's B-A-R-R-I-T-I-C-U-S at gmail.com. Now, just after Barrett Brown put this video up, he himself got doxxed, and he fled his home in Texas for New York City, claiming that the Zeta cartel was after him and that there were contracts out on his entire family. But nothing Barrett Brown says is verifiable. There are a lot of holes in his story. In fact, there's a lot of holes in the Operation Cartel story itself. I mean, the whole thing comes down to a YouTube video of a dude in a Guy Fox mask trash-talking the Zetas. Anonymous members said that they were taking out this operation of cartel, basically saying that Anonymous is going to come after the Zetas cartel in the state of Veracruz because you had kidnapped one of our members during a previous action and we want him freed, and that they were going to identify and release the names and addresses and information on known Setas cartel associates, businesses, and uh, aligned um, police officers and, and, and officials. That's Daniel Hernandez, a journalist who lives in Mexico City. He told me that when he first learned about Operation Cartel, he didn't know if he should laugh or cry. There were a, a bunch of things that were immediately suspicious about this. I mean, how could someone who's a a Setas associate be identified, or any criminal cartel group associate be identified. And the releasing of names, um, how, how could you trust that list? Why wouldn't that list ha be generated by someone else, by some group with some interest? Put that out there and maybe even put completely innocent lives at risk. So I think ultimately, in my view, it was dangerous to report and say that Anonymous, the hackers group, is threatening to take down the Zetas cartel. But this ludicrous story about the hacktivists taking on the Zeta drug cartel was unstoppable. It made international headlines. And curiously, it was the Stratfor intelligence company that first pushed the story in America. But for Daniel, the media blitz was extremely disturbing. To me, it didn't pass what uh, some of us reporters who cover this call you know, the sniff test. It didn't smell right. There was something a little bit off about this. And yet, it was immediately amplified, both in the local press and in the American press. That served a purpose for someone. I mean, it, and it's really crazy to think about your work as possibly um, being unwittingly uh, a piece of propaganda. But I think that in this kind of scenario, in the kind of media atmosphere that we live in, in this conflict in Mexico, and with all the players um, involved, social media, mainstream press, um, highly sophisticated and ruthless criminal organizations, and also highly sophisticated military and federal um, forces, um, you just have to be very, very, very careful. It is not Egypt. It's not Tunisia. It is just a completely different ballgame. It's a completely different dimension, the way it's working out here. Daniel Hernandez says that there's a link between the naive idealists behind Operation Cartel and the Western romantic vision of the heroic Mexican journalist. Both flat-out deny just how much power the cartels wield in Mexico. 
like any other citizen in Mexico right now, I feel caught as well between these forces that are at war in this country. There's so much entanglement and entrapment at play. And, and it's a war in which the citizens are caught in the middle on every level, both physically and socially and now virtually. What Daniel's hinting at is, of course, that it's most likely that Operation Cartel was the brainchild of one of the Zeta's enemies or rivals. In other words, it was all done for the narco lulls. It turns out that the cartels are masters of virtual trolling and harassment and extortion. They've even perfected the virtual kidnapping. Virtual is the one where they'll call a family member and say, hey, we have your daughter, for example. Um, you have 15 minutes to send us this amount of money on Western Union to this number, this account. And so they don't give them time to verify that the person's not there. Well, if their daughter has a Facebook profile that's left too open with too much personal data, it makes it really convincing and those people will pay it. That's Shauna Delavo, a security researcher. I also met at South by Southwest this year. She's been studying the ways in which the drug cartels use social media, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to get their message out. YouTube is one of those tools that I think gets the, gets the message of fear out there most directly, most quickly. It's really evocative. It's really emotional. There was a video that I was looking at. I didn't watch it because I couldn't, but of um, a guy who was being interrogated who was castrated while still alive, and you can see it in the video, and who was scalped again while still alive. And it's a matter of these guys standing around, somebody filming it with a cell phone camera and then uploading it. The image is very clear. Like Those who run the show here in Mexico are not the good guys, not the law guys, or not you know, any sort of public official. It's these guys. And without that, without that fear mechanism, they can't extort the public. No one's going to pay them a special fee unless they're afraid that they'll get killed. As shocking as these YouTube videos are, though, both Shauna and Daniel bemoan the media's fascination with the cartel's gory videos and decapitations of supposed citizen journalists. The real story, they say, is just how good the cartels are now at using the internet to commit crimes. It has to be clear that these guys, I call them cartels, I might call them drug traffickers or DTOs, or they call them now transnational criminal organizations, which I think might make more sense because their portfolios are far more diverse than just trafficking in drugs. Now, I hope it doesn't sound like I was picking on Barrett Brown back there, because I'm not. He's clearly a well-intentioned, moral guy. I actually feel kind of bad for him. Because of his association with Sabu and Lulsec, he says the FBI is now after him. I do think his story is important, though, because as much as Barrett Brown blows his own horn, the media really, really goes for hackers like him. There's a, a blending of the concepts of hacktivist, hacker, and what used to be called a cracker, but is now, I think, would be more appropriately termed a cyber criminal in the mainstream news coverage of, of people in this area. All of these concepts are pushed together into a catch-all term known as the hacker. Molly Sauter is a graduate student at MIT's Comparative Media Studies program. I ran into her at this year's South by Southwest as well. She gave a talk on how hackers are depicted by the media. 
She laughed at me when I called her up and asked if she had any examples of nuanced depictions of hacktivists both working for a cause and working for the lulls. The mainstream press, she reminded me, doesn't really believe in the hacktivist. I think there's a split. There's a split in, in between the mainstream media and the, and the more internet-centric media on how, how they're viewed. Um, the more internet-centric media, I think, is more, much more sympathetic to viewing them as hacktivists, whereas the mainstream media, like the evening news and the major newspapers, are much more prone to see either straight-up criminals or pimply kids in basements. I think a good example of this is with the anonymous Sabu arrest that just happened. This, the article I'm thinking about was in the New York Times. Yeah, the headline is Hacker Informant and Party Boy of the Projects. It's very much focused on establishing a character as opposed to depicting this guy as either a serious activist or even just a regular person. We have a meshing of the criminal, the, the criminal individual and the activist individual. And while these aspects of this particular individual may all be true, they all come together to form a conception of hacktivism and hackers themselves as being on a smooth continuum with cybercrime. I do think the lulls can be used politically in effective ways. It's, it's good for all sorts of reasons. Let's pick up where we left off with Gabriella Coleman in Anonymous. Over the past year and a half, she says, Anonymous has successfully and repeatedly made use of the lulls to carry out its hacktivist operations to defend WikiLeaks and fight internet censorship. Well, I just think that, you know, this, the kind of sense of creative freedom and mischievousness that's part of the lulls is integral to their kind of um, way of organizing and socializing within Anonymous, right? It's part of their kind of everyday way of, of interacting with each other. So it's central to not how they identify, but how they actually are. It's important uh, internally among protesters or activists because it's fun and it's a good way to keep spirits up in the context of political work which can sometimes be a little depressing um, and then it can be used tactically as a way to gain media attention through a sort of irreverent audacious prank as well and the <clears throat> the lulls is that which is very hard to predict you kind of do something because it's hilarious and you exploit a, a situation right it's very different from, oh, Syria is killing protesters, you go after them. That's very predictable, right? Whereas following something for the lulls is very unexpected. So it, it for better, for worse, what it does is it guarantees unpredictability in these political groups. And so it, it functions more tactically to create the conditions of surprise. I think, I think the lulls is, you know, the Boston Tea Party of our time. Since Weave was there first, let's give him the last word. I know you're laughing, but it's true. Like, I, I, I want the pogrom today. <laughs> take him out of, of Merrill Lynch. Take him out of J.P. Morgan. 
Like, beat them. Like, <laughs> make them afraid for their lives. <laughs> that, that would be a good thing, but I'll settle for embarrassing them. What greater thing is there than highly comedic art? <laughs> what, what better thing to dedicate my life to than just being hilarious all the time? And uh, that's, that's basically what doing it for the lulls is about. <laughs> My name is Jon Gnar. I'm a human being and a mayor of Reykjavik, which makes me technically the mayor of Iceland because Reykjavik is the only city. The comedian Jon Gnar made international headlines when he founded the Best Party in Iceland and successfully ran for mayor of Reykjavik in June of 2010. And while the media always hypes up his background in film and television and stand-up, his real passion, he told me, is the radio. I've always enjoyed working in radio, mostly because I'm good. If there is something I'm very good at, it's, it's talking. I can talk for hours and hours and hours. And that's just a talent I have. And I can also keep it quite interesting and, and even entertaining, what I'm saying. When I started working in radio 20 years ago, I just instantly loved it and it gives you so much creative freedom because you can pretend so much on the radio you can pre pretend like a lot is going on even if it's not you know but you cannot do if you have a camera if there's one thing that john gunnar misses now that he's the mayor it's doing his morning radio show it was a morning show from 7 to 11. It was me, me and my associate or my partner in, in crime. And he would uh, take care of the mixer and, and, you know, and choosing songs. And I would go, you know, and rant about something. Or we would have like an argument on, on something that we didn't agree on. John Gennar got famous for doing comedic pranks. One time I, I pretended to be breaking into cars. So I walked around in a parking lot, in a big parking lot, you know, trying to open cars. And I said, no, I cannot open this car. Because we were raising money for something, yeah. And I was going to see if there were any change in the cars. Finally, I, I, I managed to open a car and open it. And it was very, very exciting. But it's, it, it was my own car, you know. I wasn't breaking into any cars. I was just... It's just <laughs> but everybody believed it. On many occasions, these radio pranks would lead to trouble with the police. I called the police once, the department that handles hunting gear, hunting weapons, registration tonight, up to the guy and I said, uh, I have a box of hand grenades. Can I get a license for hand grenades? 
And he was like, no, it's actually very illegal to have hand grenades. And I said, but can't you make me a special permission? You know, I can use it for fishing and stuff. He was, he was like, fishing? How, how are you going to fish with hand grenades? You know, just throw them in the lake and the fish float up, you know. they. <laughs> and, uh, and they traced their phone call and the police came. <laughs> I think that was one of the first times the police came actually physically in a car to the station and we were brought out and taken to a police station. John Gunnars pranked people all over the world. German bankers, American CIA officials, Nigerian scammers. And when the IMF came to Iceland, he pranked them too. When Iceland went bankrupt and the IMF came, we were officially into an IMF program. We called the IMF. International Monetary Fund, can I help you? Yes, I'm calling from Iceland. We've just been taken over by the IMF. How long will this last? Do you, do you know that? No, I'm only working here in the, in the service. Yeah, yeah, I know, but you must have some insight into what's going on there. I mean, you work there, you, you meet these guys, you, you, you talk in the, in the cafeteria and stuff. You, I mean, you hear, no, no, I don't do that, no. Oh, you, you don't talk to each other there? Uh, can I help you? <laughs> Our pranks were always, you know, just naive, friendly nonsense. This is how he ended up running for mayor. It all started out as a prank on his radio show. Me and my associate, we were discussing maybe I should go into politics because I don't know anything about politics and I'm not interested in politics. Maybe I should go into politics and, and see what happens. So we decided that I would go into politics and I would become Minister of Culture. And when I had become Minister of Culture, I would make Sigurjón, my associate, head of the state radio and television station. And he would offer me my own show on Saturday nights. But there was just one slight problem with this plan. I didn't realize that the upcoming elections were municipality elections. I thought I was going to be a minister of some sort, but in that sense I failed. John may be the accidental mayor of Reykjavik, but he's by no means a failure. His campaign struck a chord with the jaded Icelandic public, sick and tired of the progressives and the right-wingers. But even though he now commands City Hall, he still sees himself, he says, as an outsider. Most people see me as a mayor and are quite happy with me as a mayor, but I am still a stranger in that world. I am still, you know, the weird guy who's always sitting alone in the corner. John has a countdown clock running on his iPad that informs him just how many seconds are left before he can go back to doing his radio show. But still, he's proud of what he's accomplished so far. Since elected, I have led the uh, Gay Pride Parade in drag. That's one thing I'm very proud of. Also, I am a pacifist. So wherever uh, I get the opportunity to use my position as mayor to uh, talk about peace, I will do that. And in a way, I think it's many little things that will lead up to something big. 
I want to make Iceland a nuclear-free zone, and when warships come to Iceland, to Reykjavik, the officials, it's custom that uh, the mayor invites the officials from the warship to the city hall. I don't, because I'm a pacifist and I, I have nothing personally against them, but we're not having pancakes in city hall either, you know? <laughs> If there's someone who understands the political power of the lulls, it's John Gnarr. He admits that his campaign and the best party all was based on a big joke, but he also firmly believes that the only way to fight the nonsense of modern politics is to fight back with real nonsense. Nonsense is the answer. It's the ultimate answer to everything because there is no sense to anything. If it makes you feel better, you can come up with a theory of sense to something. But nonsense is always makes much more sense that there is no sense. For me, it's not nihilism. It's not that everything is meaningless and worthless. It's not, not that at all. It's just that uh, nonsense is the most important thing because it's in harmony with life. Life is nonsense. Nonsense is such a powerful thing and the absurd is so powerful and as politics evolved they were evolving more and more into uh, absurdity. You could see scenes from uh, political happenings and would sometimes be like written by Samuel Beckett or something. The dialogue, the things that people were saying and the conversations people were having. So uh, when we came out with our nonsense and the nonsense uh, promises and everything, people saw the resemblance to what had been going on. I think we need a president, doesn't matter where, just anywhere, anywhere in the world, who has Down's syndrome. Because I think that would mean that we had evolved and everything would be improving from there on. People with Down's are the uh, nicest people I've ever met. I really love people with Down's and they are vanishing. One day we will not have them anymore. They will be uh, extinct. Uh, makes me sad. And can you imagine, you know, if the president of the United States had Down syndrome and he would just go around just hugging people and everybody would love him. And, and I think we should uh, make uh, a pope with Down syndrome. It would heal the whole church, you know. It would, everything would heal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Now we are planning to go national, you know, take over this country and uh, open up an embassy, like a real embassy in Palestine and welcome all refugees, all you who are prosecuted to Iceland. And I will be Minister of Culture. I will hire my friend. He will take over the broadcasting uh, company and then he will offer me to have my own show on Saturday nights. And then I will resign. I will make up a scandal or something. It has to be a nice scandal, like a funny scandal, maybe involving the same woman who was uh, involved with uh, Oliver Strauss-Kahn, like the exact same woman. <laughs>
<laughs> like very similar, you know. No, it's a misunderstanding. It's a, uh. <laughs> you fly her out to Iceland to clean your room. Yeah, yeah. I fly her out to Iceland to clean my room. <laughs> she came highly recommended and uh, never had any problems. I was just having a shower and uh, now I've... <laughs> so, I resign. I, that's, that's, yeah, do that. I resign. <laughs> This episode of Too Much Information is called Doing It for the Lulls. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, with Bill Bowen and Sylvie Kovnat. And it featured John Gennar, Gabriella Coleman, Daniel Hernandez, Brian Knappenberger, Molly Sauter, Shauna Devo, Weave, and TMI's special correspondent, Chris. There's even more information, including links and images, on the TMI playlist page, and that's where you can subscribe to the TMI podcast as well. All that at WFMU.org. <laughs>